So Alex Selenich, just so everyone knows who I'm talking to. <laughs> That's you. Um, in Goulburn, the town I grew up in, there was this, I don't know how true this story is, and it doesn't really matter, but there's a town hall in Goulburn on Auburn Street, and it's um, and it, it's a Dutch building, like a Dutch design. Mm. I don't know. I don't know enough about architectural Dutch, but you do. It has like a slate roof and certain curves mm-hmm. and sort of stuff. And apparently they weren't the plans that the town that Goulburn asked requested, but because it came out by ship, it took so long to get there that when it arrived, they just built it anyway. Yes. <laughs> and I remember you talking once about buildings like if a if a if you've got the plans for say like the Guggenheim just as an example and provide you've got the know-how and desire to do that like the the manpower and the the right sort of um integrity it doesn't really matter if a building gets blown up you just build it again because you can like it's just like yes. Frank Lloyd Wright's house or something or yes. Johnson doesn't matter you know um uh, you, you could just rebuild it provided you've got the plans to do so which is kind of like that building it, it's sort of funny that it's there because you're sort of it's not supposed to be there because the plans were there they could build it anyway and it probably looks just as much like a Dutch building in Holland or somewhere as it does here like there's probably nothing missing the materials are probably accurate I don't know and the reason I say it is there's something about it um, um, when we were going through the editing of Purgatorio there's that line you pointed out, like a unity made of questions, you know, the mm. idea of art. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that with poetry and architecture, that I think a poem is kind of a, a cerebral or cognitive object. Like it actually does exist in a way. I'm not trying to be clever about it, but it's something you can... So if you look at a architectural plans, even though it's not built... It sort of exists anyway. Do you know what I'm trying to get at? Yes. Look, yeah, there's a... Uh, architecture is also a kind of a virtual thing anyway. Um, a building is a sort of a... Building to architecture is kind of like text or journalism or print to poetry. Yeah. Um, the, the building is a kind of physical manifestation of sort of spatial conditions and spatial ideas. Um when it gets to being really important about the spatial conditions that are being shown to you that you inhabit, then it becomes architecture. Mm. And same with a with a with language that's printed on a page. Once that's you start to make turn that into some kind of uh, set of relationships or ideas or uh, um, images that that you can kind of build into some kind of memory or some kind of uh, relationship to your experience, then it becomes poetry. Mm. It's not poetry until that happens, and with a building, it's not uh, architecture until until something you realise something through occupation or uh, visiting it, or maybe even contemplating it from photographs as well. You can do that. Um, it's not until you realise there's something about how that tells you about the nature of space and of existence and of bodies and groups of people and so on. So it doesn't have to be built then. It doesn't have to be built. In fact. Uh, uh, often uh, a building is a very bad representation of the architecture. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and it's like it's like uh, sometimes uh, a, a printed version of the poem is a very bad version of the poem. Well, the poem is a very bad version of the thought, as well. It's, 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 it's there's so there's all these <laughs> things that there's a loss of kind of uh, in all of these things because they're done with lots of people. There's always a loss of data. At the same time as there is a gain of data, hmm. you know, in in translation, for instance, many people 
beat their chests and, and weep loudly about how impossible translation is. It doesn't ever stop them from doing it, but they weep about how impossible it is because there's always a loss between the original mm. and, the, and the translation. Yeah. There are lots of cases where the translation actually turns out to be better literature than the original. Mm. You know, the, the Omar Khayyam thing and Fitzgerald's translations is a celebrated, celebrated 19th century, I think it's 19th century, um, a case of that. You know, um, but there's lots of other lots of other uh, conditions, and sometimes the new poetry is better than the old. It's so called this. The business of loss and gain is a toing and froing all the time. It's never still, and it's, there's no formula for it. You can't say, for instance, here is uh, here are 100 lines of poetry in French. I'm now going to translate this into English, and I'll probably lose say 80 percent. Yeah. <laughs> or twenty percent. Yeah. So the English is only eighty percent of the worth of it. Well, no, no, no. That's, no. You, there's no kind of rule about it. Yeah, like it, it doesn't. If if it's for me with, I mean, and I'm, I used to talk to James Greve about it a lot yes. because I was fascinated by translation. Not so much because I'm not bilingual. I struggle with English, mm. but it was more my interest was that there's no reason why there'd be any, um, in a universal sense, all I, I'm of the opinion or belief that all people um, are exposed to the same sign of emotions and moods and ideas. You know, like you, mm. So therefore, naturally a language would have a way of expressing that in one way or another. So you might have a very small vocabulary in some languages compared to others, or not small, but a smaller one. But it doesn't mean it can't be expressed because you have to turn to metaphors and similes and symbols. And, and of course, well, cultures do this. You know? Yes. So... Um, Colour's an obvious one, you know, where they don't have the word for blue or green or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but they've still got it. They've still got it. They still know how yeah. to get around it, you know. Yeah, that's right. So, so therefore, the idea of translating would lose anything. It's It, it might lose something and gain another. You know, you find that the translation has improved. In, it's like a seesaw, you know, where it goes up, it goes Gen- down. It's, general, it's Faustian generally, bargain, you know. Generally, it does that. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's when it's... A t- it, I think the thing about illustration, uh, the difference between an illustration and a translation is involved here where an illustration of something or other of a text or of, a, of an idea or whatever is a loss of, uh, of information generally yeah. because it just concentrates on a specific kind of uh, interpretation or a specific uh, uh, single meaning hmm. to make it clear. It's like a diagram yeah. of the original. But the original, if it's, if it's a good piece of work, a good piece of poetry, a good piece of architecture, mm. a good painting, it will continue to provide many, many, many mm. diagrams. Well, that's a difference. Yeah, yeah. See, with diagrams, if you had an actual diagram, like a Venn diagram yeah. or something abstract, then it can it can reveal or unconceal the information that's trying to be told. Because yes. you sort of go, oh, that's a much more... I can see all the information in one go because it's so abstract. But if we take a illustration like Khrushchev's, you know, um, Fagan sitting in his cells yes. for yeah. you know, Oliver Twist, yeah. uh, or Tenniel with Alice, that comes a point where they become more celebrated than the work, and you've got no other way of interpreting the work other than through the through image. The, that's right. And this is sort of why you sort of get Christians or you know, Judeo, you know, you know, um, Judeo Christian sort of views like Muslims that who don't like. I can like you know I, they sort of see it as idolatrous because you do end up celebrating the, the icon more than the, that's the right. idea. That's <laughs> right. That's absolutely true, and that's that's the, the it becomes much more seductive. And the thing about those the thing about Tenniel's illustrations of Alice is that they are easier to take 
generally, than the text. Yeah, yeah. The text is a bit slippery and it's a bit evocative and it's a bit ambiguous and, and that's what makes it charming, of course, mm. and really good to read. That's what makes it literature. Uh, but the illustration uh, ties it down mm. and makes it easier. Therefore, it's a lot easier for it to be spread through the culture mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. There are some, like, just get on the subject, there are some really nice sort of little slippages in those illustrations. If you get mm. the Macmillan version of it, yes. not the original, but one, yeah. the way the sequence works, and there are certain things, particularly where Humpty Dumpty is sitting on the wall, yeah. you see Tinnial's such a clever illustrator, he shows the foreshortened wall, and it shows that he's sitting on a razor's edge. Yes. You know. There are little things there that can people overlook, but but I know what you mean. You know, there's yes. you know you don't have to see those things. You can just grab them and run. Yeah. But going back to um, that idea of like a, a mental object, um, it's not to sort of sound I don't want to sound clever about it, but you think of you know um, those early philosophers like Pythagoras and of course Plato, where this sort of concept of divine intervention is like the the, the the idea of ideas, the forms. So the idea of a, you know, we have this sort of, like they felt a residual memory of, you know, perfection and beauty in a circle which we can't build on this imperfect planet, you know, and it, it, poetry for me sort of runs yes. parallel to that, and so does architecture. Yeah. Like every architect's yeah. disappointed, aren't they? Like, I'm more or less, but, but sometimes, sometimes, what goes up is is better than what you even thought it would be. Yeah, and that happens with paintings, doesn't it? It happens with drawings. Yeah. Sometimes it happens with a poem. Someone you you, you write it and yeah. whatever, and then a few years later you look at it, or someone else comes and looks at it and says, "Wow, did you realise that this is this is this?" And I said, "No, I just I just held a pen, stop the yeah, pen from you... falling over." You know, but but it is it's there. But you, sometimes it's better. That's right. There's this this business of it being being worse or information loss is uh, is look. A good way of explaining this, I've always thought about this, is, is in architecture and also in, I started to think of this also applies to other ways of being creative, other genres. There's a difference between archetypes and types. Types are generally thought of uh, by people who dwell in the realms of data loss. Hmm. It's a sort of a country you fall into. Types are specific kinds of figures. Yeah. yeah? Like there are types of human beings, there are types of table, there are types of flowers, there are types of... It's, it, you get a taxonomy out of it, yeah? And things belong in a particular kind of order due to their, their composition. Type, typology is a way of holding a, a complex composition together as a single image. Now, the thing about a, a typology is that it's, it, if it's, it can be restrictive, but it can also be very, very creative. And in my in my uh, opinion, a, a type a type is a live and living kind of discipline. That is, a sonnet is a sonnet, and you can you can try and write sonnets like the Renaissance used to, but you can also be interestingly different with it each time, mm. and you still are making a sonnet. And every time someone makes a new kind of sonnet, it increases our understanding of what the type is. It doesn't deny it, or it doesn't uh, thing. You, it 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 is brought in, into yeah. the into the definition of the type. So, for instance, a cup, cup is a type here yeah, for yeah. me, um, or a chair. A chair is the classic case, actually. Yeah, yeah you ever see a chair. chair? A chair. Okay. Well, the Egyptians, 
produced a very competent, elegant, beautiful, comfortable chair for a single person to sit on. Mm. Since then, designers and makers and architects and painters and the rest of them have made new chairs, new kinds of chairs. Every week there's a new chair <laughs> design that comes out. Yeah. Now, what, what they're doing there is they're talking chair. They're talking the language of the chair. And they're keeping the thing alive as a kind of an idea, as a virtual idea. And every time a chair comes out, you look at it in response to all the other kinds of chairs that are around, and you think that adds to the definition of what we think a chair is. So it's really very much to do with the object itself. Now, the archetype is... Some people think that, that archetypes are a bit like types in that they are sort of... They are a specific thing, mm. yeah? Like a boat is an archetype, yeah? Could be an archetype. Yeah. Um, certainly a type, yeah. but it could be an archetype, yeah? yeah? But the thing is, the archetype is quite different because the archetype doesn't relate to, uh, doesn't relate to a specific object. Yeah. It relates to a specific human experience. Yeah. So if you, were, uh, if you were using the boat as an archetype, what you're really talking about is being at sea, mm. is travelling in a confined space, being a complete city on the loose here, yeah? which is what Noah's Ark might be, yeah, yeah. or the or the uh, those those ships that were around the coast of Australia with that were infected just oh, recently. Like the cruise ships. Yeah, the cruise ships. Yeah. They were they were the same thing. They they were yeah. this kind of that that was getting towards being an archetype of human experience. Yeah. The thing about 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 every time an archetype is used is it's deeply cultural, and it is deeply. Uh, individual and you have to kind of peel your way through the surface qualities of the archetype to see what is the human experience that is being talked about well, that, yeah so a chair yeah. then like if, if it, um, the funk like a, a log can become a chair through its yes. usage you that's know, it's right it's not designed to be a chair so it's a much more zen approach like a sort of a oh. you know or a, or a shen or da, like it's just like a, a, a I don't know like a like just looking around the room, like you've got a, you know, like a spatula up there. Well, that can be a back scratch. It all can be a fly swatter. That's you know, right. Depends yes. what you want to use it for. And I remember Manzoni saying that Italian designer, you know, yeah. he'd done a chair for a lesson. They came back to him saying, you know, um, why don't you design another chair? And he said, no. And he said, why, why not? Because the world doesn't need more chairs. Mm. You know, he felt like, what? how many chairs do we need? You know? That's right. Um, but... That's just taken from the from the point of view of a practical issue. Yeah. Whereas, whereas it, what what we like to do it with chairs is we there is this object social object that we have, and we like to futz around with it. Hmm. Yeah, that we enjoy that a lot. You know, it, it's uh, generally humorless kind of uh, humorless kind of authoritarian. That's where hmm. I put them anyway. All yeah. the people who say there's a standard chair, that's it, you'll have it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But see, when you go like think, keeping that in mind. And you go back to what you're saying for like when you say you finish a chair or you finish mm. a, a canoe or whatever, like yeah, a pot yeah. or whatever, and you're happy with the result. Yeah. The musicians would have or composers or whatever yeah. it might be, painters, you're saying. I think it, for me anyway, sometimes you do something and time passes and you look back on it in a way that it's almost like you didn't do it. You look back at something you did 10 years ago. Or you come, you go to a friend's place yeah. and they say, oh, I remember this thing you did or something. Well, and you are. And you sort of see the fresh and go, I wouldn't do it now, but I'm grateful of the person who did, which is you, you know. Yes. But there's also a feeling when something works and even can happen during the making, and I don't mean the sound, I mean this in the most secular way possible, but it's almost like there is a third hand at work. 
you know what I mean? It's not. I'm not saying. I'm not talking about a god. I'm not. Talk, I mean, you could interpret that way. But I mean, there's some. You sort of just. It's 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 sort of like driving on a car trip, and then you go. Did we go through? Did we go through? You know, Gundagai. I don't remember. Yes. And you, I think yes. we did. And you think, oh, we have. Yes. I don't remember going through. You know, there's this sort of who was driving. If you weren't, and there's something about making a picture or writing, and all of a sudden you look back and know if you lost. It's like your whole life. If someone said, Alex, you got to do it all again. How many errors would you make if you no, had to try and can't. get back? <laughs> Actually, There's all these things that happen that sort of put you in the place where you've arrived at. I had I had a great uh, uh, illustration of this um, uh, or experience of this uh, a couple of years ago. More than a couple of years ago, I, I used up my kids' leftover letter-set uh, sheets and some leftover bits of cardboard and did these kind of landscape, horizontal things using the alphabet and numbers to, to help you to read from left to right. And, uh, and I produced about 11 of them, yeah, in a day or two, yeah. They just sort of grew and they, they just did them. Okay, I exhibited them up in Sydney, at Noreen, uh, up at Brisbane, I mean, at Noreen's place. And uh, 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 one of the librarians from, this, from the gallery wanted to buy one, one of them. Uh, but then the uh, National Gallery put in an offer for the whole set. Yeah. So so she willingly got let go of it. And I said to her, oh, no, don't worry, I'll make you another one. Yeah. So I've got a photocopy of it. Yeah. I found some letter set. I tried to reproduce it. Incredibly difficult. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I could do it photographically. Yeah. But to do it again with a letter set... Yeah. I just didn't know what to do or in what order. Whereas at the time when I was doing it, it just went rapidly and smoothly through. Mm. You know, mm. there's this kind of... And it is true, it's like someone is guiding you. Well, that's... I'm quite happy to say it's the muse that's doing this. Yeah. I'm quite happy for people to say, no, there's a kind of uh, subterranean or complicated mechanism inside us, in, which might be called intuition and other kinds of subliminal ways of acting, which are part of, the, part of us as a mechanism, that there is no outside force, but it's somehow or other everything is in tune and uh, you're working, you know. So I'm quite happy with either of those explanations. Though I do prefer the business of the muse, though, because mm. it, it, it's more accurate. The, I think it's more accurate to say, well, my job is to just make sure the pen doesn't fall over. Yeah. yeah. And when it comes out, it comes out, you know. Yeah, because I... I I find when I talk to people about the poets and I'm, you know, um, meeting or selecting or chasing down or whatever yeah. for life or man, I try and I was talking to a writer the other day about it, a novelist, and I said I don't whether I like them or not, it's not that important. He said, really, it must be important to like them. So it's not that I don't like them, but what I said is, let's say if I was undecided about something, so I asked you, Alex whether you liked it or not. And you said you did like it. And then we showed it to someone else and they said, I don't like it. At that point, if I'm going to value someone's opinion on liking something, I have to, should have to, by same measure, I should also value someone who says it doesn't, they don't like it. You know, you're almost yeah. looking for support on the idea of what favours, which way do I really want to, I want, I want to just be helped. Like I want to be supported in doing this. So eventually you sort of think, well, you know, the, the want for me to um, choose poetry is, uh, the feeling of, and I've mentioned it before in a conversation, but like an urgency, a real want to have something in the world, you know, something, someone's really put, that there's this need to try and write, and some people may only write one book, a collection of poetries or one big work like yourself and never do another one. 
but the 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 mental um, effort or desire, whatever it is, has caused that thing to come into being. You know, you know, like it's in mm. your head or it's written mm. on paper, and how much of it really belongs to that individual anyway, because it's a part. It's a it's a product of a time, you know, and, a, and yes. conversations and borrowed, you know, not borrowed, not in a plagiarized way, but their own reading or watching and events that happen and. And and particularly now where poetry seems to have become even more ephemeral, where you have spoken word and ephemeral in topics like something could happen like recently, like this past year, COVID, Black Lives Matter. And I think about when we were, you know, living in the 80s, when AIDS was a big thing. But what happened to those poems? Do they resonate the same way now? Do you know, they're not as, maybe not as timeless as, do you know what I mean? They, they sort of, and it's so, so there's things that happen that um, people take on and, I mean, I'm probably not explaining this very well, but it always feels to me that the there is a sort of a the autonomy of the poets there, but they're actually much more tethered to what's around them than I they probably so. realise. Yes, yeah. I think I think that's absolutely right, um, and there's no guarantee that w- what you what you make now, what you write now, will be of any interest in 30 years time or, or, a 40, week. or even or <laughs> next week for that matter or even later on today but it's, <laughs> it's you don't we, again there's no far hard and fast rule about mm. about the time limit of these things Ge- generally speaking if you can to get back to that idea of the diagrams if you can only pull one diagram out of, out of it um then the then the work is not going to last all that long mm. But if it's open to all sorts of interpretations again and again and again and again, that's okay. Now, that's, this is not to... This is to think of the kind of the magic of the object or of the composition itself. But you have to realise that there are other forces involved in what makes um, a work of art long-lived, and they are political and economic as well. Mm. So a work that uh, makes a lot of money for its owner... Or has some status of some sort uh, due to non-art kind of reasons, it's going to last a lot longer because there's no doubt about how uh, good we are at finding meaning in something which well, is hardly anything there. Oh yeah, you can only, you know yeah. Yeah, that's that's evident everywhere. Like yeah. like that's not even in art. That can be that, that can be everywhere. That's <laughs> Diamonds right. are a good example. Diamonds, that's right. <laughs> Gold. So, yeah. yeah. So all these things are. Uh, this is a kind of a fluid area, but it is true. It is interesting to 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 read some. Sometimes we we read some poems from the nineteenth century. This is in English. You read read something from the nineteenth century or from the seventeenth century, and you or the eighteenth century, and you think think this is really terrific. Mm. This is absolutely stunning. It it you just could not express this any any better now. Um, but then you read some other stuff that was written at exactly the same time and it's kind of written in poetic language as well and would have been considered to be part of the poetry of the time. It's just garbage. Hmm. Or it's, its language doesn't work anymore. It kind of... I don't, I don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah well, you can see that in... in um, oh, you can see that in paintings. Easily. Well, everywhere. I mean, I think, yeah. I think poetry is... Um, well, this is probably a different subject, but... If we if we take some well, like you see it in film, film yes. it, it has an expiry date. Very it can happen yes. rapidly for some films. Yeah. And I think of, I mean, I don't know how many 
Oscars John Wayne got. Not that I'm saying that as a measure, but it is a measure. For yes. someone, it's a measure. Yes, that's right. And those old cowboy films, like, I don't think you couldn't watch one almost. You'd have to, like, it. So there's certain films that just sort of don't resonate anymore. Whereas I think there's certain films, like, of the 70s in the US, you know, like, those ones outside of Hollywood, a bit like Dog Day Afternoon and Deer Hunter, that show that not everything is right in the world. They they work perfectly well today because not everything not is right, right in the world. world. That's right. You know I mean? But there's other ones where they're too, um, you know, it, it doesn't mean they have to be pessimistic. They just, I think there's films that have an ambiguity to them that doesn't sort of lay the blame on good versus bad. It's more it's more blended than that. Yes. And I think that, um, and this is where it probably gets onto another subject um, with poetry is that, as we see, like over on that shelf that you've got there, that the top three shelves are all poetry and the bottom part's cookbooks. Well, uh, cookbooks, is, they don't really need to be books anymore because the internet, you know, no. they're gone. But I think no. poetry has always been a, of a very small select minority interest and they'll remain books because they've managed to survive all of this already. You know, I think that there's a want for them to be in books. But I think the novel's really challenged now with film and stuff. Like, a lot of things I can get in a novel, I will turn to a film and go, that's good enough for me. You know, because it doesn't... Some novels don't do that. Like, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, like novels like I'm really fond of Ulysses and into a movie, it's not going to make a lot of sense. It's, it's just going to miss so much. No, no. But, um... How, however, there are some, some novels which really make very beautiful movies. Mm. And, in fact, there's a great... I was talking about this at Peter's place yesterday... Um, uh, Stanislav Lem, uh, he was going on about his hatred of science fiction, which I more or less agree with him, but not a hundred percent. But but Stanislav Lem wrote this thing called Solaris. Oh yeah, yeah, which is which is a very interesting novel, very nice to read. Um, and Tarkovsky has made a movie of it. Well, you have to say no, he hasn't made a movie of the novel. He's made a movie using the same kind of subject matter and the same characters and the same some of the same ideas, but put them into a filmic context. Like he hasn't illustrated the book, mm. so to speak. Yeah. Um, in fact, what's really different is the ending of it, which is completely differently organised in a novel than it is to the to the film. And then George Clooney has starred in yeah, a, an American movie, movie yeah. of it, which is. Completely different in its stylistics, changes some of the characters, but still gets the same kind of subject matter through in the film that, that, that the book does, and also Tarkovsky's movie. And I look at the three of them and I think, gosh, the three of them act, acting as a bundle. Yeah. You know, you, you're understand. So they're, they're becoming actually like what I was talking about, about types. Yeah. Yeah. They, the three of them talk to each other, and if you look at the three together, you get a very much richer understanding of each one of them. Hmm. Yeah, because each one of them is a commentary on the, uh, each one of them is a commentary on the other two. Um, and it made me, it made me last night. I thought, geez, I wonder if I should do a version of Solaris. Like on those types, I used to have heaps yeah. of, I mean, various versions of Hamlet. On yes, there, and various versions of Alice. Yes, and the two Alice's I found that were the most suitable was, was there was a this Venkmeyer one. Yes, which is quite sort yes, of highbrow. Yes, I know. It, yes, it's quite nightmarish, but funny yes. at times. Whereas the other one that I think really captured aspects of the book from a younger reader's point of view when I first read it when I was fifteen or sixteen yeah. is um, Walt Disney's one. Yes, you know, but it, it does capture a side of Alice that's a different age. Now I started collecting vampire films because yes. I thought that the vampire. I always wanted to illustrate a vampire book. But I know it sounds weird, but not in the gothic sense. Mm. Just this—I always felt yes. it had this sort of 
there's something else in it that interested me. So I started collecting films and there were two films that I came to that, and one ended my collection in the end. I, was, I, was, I wasn't collecting them so much as buying them to watch. And the one I got was called uh, The Shadow of the Vampire, which had um, um, Malkovich in it opposite um, Willem Dafoe. And they, it's the making of the Nosferatu film. Yes. And they actually, rather than in that, you know, the original Nosferatu film, that guy, I don't know his name, he played Nosferatu. Well, in this one, uh, the director who's played by um, Malkovich, he... he hires an actual vampire so that guy is actually and he goes around eating the sound man or not sound man the lighting man and that and he's going you can't eat everyone and when they draw the curtains back in the in the film in this remake they actually do kill him you know because yeah. that was always in there and they didn't tell him that and they yeah. kill him and they said yes you get to eat or all this sort of stuff but that was never going to be the yeah. case and then the other film was um, which is more recent book which is called um, Let see, the Rock see that subject matter is is the title yeah. is the title but they've also pulled in the idea about what is real and what isn't real mm. Yeah, what is acting? What is the actual thing itself? And yeah. how can they be mixed and all that? Yeah, yeah and when you go down through this mm. stuff, well, the other one was just called Let the Right One In. There was a Finnish film, mm. then there was an American one. They were quite yeah. different, but yeah. they did sort of cover up in the way of the vampire. It was interesting. But when you start looking through this, all these ideas of vampires, where they go back to, like you think of Goya's painting of Saturday, yes. Jupiter, it's yeah. called, or the, someone eating someone, then you get ones like, you know, like... um. I don't know, what are some other early state like where you get sort of cannibalistic images yes. and yeah. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but you know, in certain stories like, you know, um like fairy tales and stuff like the um Hansel and Gretel and they're, yes. I mean, they're not blood sucking, but they they're just eating people. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And there's something in this story like um and then there was that guy in Germany, you know, Armand Muse who ate that guy, yeah. he volunteered to be eaten in Germany and that you yeah. know, it's an actual thing that happened. You think it's there's something anyway the expression of those ideas, they don't really, who do they really belong to in poetry? You know, that's what I'm, like a building, who does a building really belong to? This, this is, that, that's the, well, the, again, if I go back to the, to the distinction between, uh, or the contrast between archetypes and types, the thing about a type is it is, is it an incredibly social object. Yeah. Yeah, like a vampire is an incredible social construction. Yeah. No one invented the vampire. It's always, uh, iterated and iterated and revised and revised like chair or yeah. table yeah. yeah or even house yeah um record book um, all of these things are objects which are social social inventions and no one actually has invented it uh, no specific person has invented it and every time you can choose to actually just reproduce what is considered to be the conventional idea of it or you can fiddle with it and do something unusual with it or maybe circumstances force you to do something new with it mm. and so on and so forth. And this is an ongoing process. Yeah. It's a very interesting one as far as I'm concerned. Mm. So this idea of constant modulation, of constant going backwards and forwards, of suddenly discovering that something written in 1310 uh, resonates with uh, Australia at, uh, at the year 2000 um, or that this is, this, these people think the same way here and so on. Yeah. The, the thing with the archetype is is that you're getting down to you going past the object or past the composition into some uh, some kind of deep human existential issue or experience and that I think is a little bit more well that means that everyone's interpretation of the object is different really mm. yeah with a, with a chair you can say oh everyone can say oh yes the, the chair it's a chair good okay yeah 
But if it's if we're talking about archetypes, people will everyone will kind of burrow into it. Everyone will do the psychoanalysis of the archetype oh, yeah. in a different way, yeah. and that's that's also okay too. Yeah. So it's like um, I don't know, like in the in the older, you know, Jewish text, like the first Adam's first wife was Lilith. Yes, and she was this sort of vampiric character, with this great sexual sexual appetite. And then you say, okay, that might fit the idea of a vampire. Like just thinking about how you can feel it, and you could say from a um, a, a, a gospel point of view that you know, um, or certainly a, a more um, Catholic or Orthodox point of view, like the um, doing communion now, drink the wine that has become blood could become vampiric. You know, like depend, like you're saying, like you could turn this on its head you know depending on what where you want to look from like all these people going on drinking the blood of christ and eating the flesh and believing it to be the case you start going this sounds a bit demonic <laughs> that's right well you want you wonder whether whether these are these these types can ex, can exist actually i think that's what happens is that is that for for creative work these things are all aspects of the vampire let's say mm. uh around us all all in detail and one of the things you can do with the composition is you can bring some of, enough of these details together for the word vampire to suddenly appear mm. out of nowhere. Yeah. So just on itself, just by itself, uh, uh, the transformation of wine to the blood of Christ is not vampiric. But what else could you put in the image? Hmm. What else could you put in there to make it more vampiric, I suppose? What about if all the congregation was dressed in black? Yeah. What about what about if? Um, what if they were just too eager? What if they were a bit too eager? <laughs> yeah. What if what if um, whatever they're just yeah. and, and you and you think well I wonder how many of these you need to bring together mm. for for this to happen? Yeah, I've always thought that that about sixty five percent of a pattern needs to be there for us to be absolutely and totally convinced that the entire pattern is there. Even though it's not. Even though it's yeah, not. Yeah, yeah 65% <laughs> is good enough, yeah, yeah? yeah? And you kind of leap and you fill in the rest, yeah? Well, I think it's true in sports. You get sports yeah. people are very superstitious, I think. So you look yes. at something like cricket, which I know you don't watch, but, yeah. but you see it in sports, you'll understand it, where there's a real focus around these numerical points, like a half ton, like getting 50 yes. runs, getting 100 runs, as if... One ninety runs. Oh no, a hundred. Like it's not. It's like that's like, right. Uh, are, a, is a batsman nervous at eighty nine? And they 90? do get nervous. You see the crowd no, get nervous for they, them when, yeah, they, 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 when they get to ninety nine. Yeah. When they get to so, ninety nine, they get really nervous. But when yeah. I did my Gallagher world record years ago, yeah. um, I remember closing with a, when I first started getting good at getting a million points without losing a man or just getting a million yeah. points. My heart used to race. Yeah. And it didn't race it getting close to nine hundred thousand points. You just start to recognise these things. That was ridiculous. Yes. So I managed to calm myself down. It's just a. It's like you've got to read like traffic signs. It's just a green yes. light, a red light. It doesn't, yeah. you stop, you go. But I think that you're right. There's these peculiar patterns that people start to um, mark. Like you see it with people turning 30, they get nervous or turning 40 or 50 as if somehow tomorrow, no, tomorrow's my 50th birthday and it's, it's like midnight, I'm going to turn into a pumpkin. Yes. <laughs> but nothing's going to happen. That's right. And if they were never told, if you never knew your birthday ever, be huge. It'd be an anxiety in itself, but it'd be another one that's not an anxiety. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you'd be might, you know, like it, it's 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 a. So getting back to poetry, though, is when mm. I was saying um, the idea of it being a a, a mental object, and I'm, yes. and I'm not, it sounds like I'm trying yes. to be clever, but I'm saying there's something in. 
poetry where you see poets they can come off easily you know they can just like those old like cold mountain poets in japan they probably just got drunk and wrote these mm. things and whatever or not saying they all got drunk but then other ones who wrestle with stuff for a long time or someone who comes in and does a big edit because the poet's yeah. so lost in what they're doing they get someone else on board but when going back to the when we we're doing that editing earlier like a unity made of questions you know because we just sort of landed on that line and it, it did seem to and when I just sort of hung on to it and you know for this conversation where you think of that you know the result of it could be the unity made of questions you know a poem but what with no answers that's right yeah, well, <laughs> just you questions provi- you provide the answers well like, like no when I say when I say the audience provides the answer mm, yeah. but I say that for autobiography too There's, is there any any autobiography in art well um, there could be but it's a waste of time really the real autobiography in art is that is is brought to it by the reader or the mm. or the listener or the the occupant of the building. That's where the autobiography mm. is, and it comes to this other thing that's been been produced. Not that you mustn't use your own experience, because often that is uh, got a high level of data to it and is detailed, and you can write about it in a particular kind of way that's not abstract. Mm. You can give some concrete details to it, but but anyway, there we are. So. So that's the quick. That's where the answer. You don't give answers when you make make a, a work of art. You you propose you propose a composition which contains a whole lot of questions. Well, see, that's like there's a lot of questions raised in like talking about Hamlet before and Alice. Mm. There's lots of questions. Yeah. I mean, and Alice is often answers supplied, but they're just as useless as the questions. You know, know. They don't really. That's right. And when I read Wittgenstein, you get the same thing. You get these kind of empty bits that they're not. They're they're perfect. Or per- they're very clear statements, yes. but the statements are left for you to draw. That's not telling you. It's not philosophy yeah. like this. How you should live your life. Yes. It's saying what is existence. What is yes. a thing? You know. It's, I mean, it, it touches, but doesn't go. Of course, we're not saying that thing made of questions. They're not like what is the what is four plus two. No, I realize they're, they're, that. Yeah. They're, they're not those kind of questions. No. What they are, they are, are propositions where 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 things are kind of together, but they're not together in the usual way, mm. or they. Are puzzling in what they might might suggest, or they are unusual, or whatever, and you have to try and figure out what it is that's going on. Well, it's like the yeah. conversation we just had. It's this sort of interconnectedness of things. Yeah, you know, like that. That yeah. we live in a, you know, it's yeah. the world is sort of analogous to it. So you know, you sort of yeah. you look at like the the relationship between things is, um, which is where a lot of poets draw from, like with metaphors and things, you know, like that we can find relationships, mm. and often it can be moods. You know, mm. it's those sort of games of. Um, you know, like um, if a, if a triangle had a colour, what would it be? And a lot of people might say, "Well, yellow." And you probably both think, "Well, yellow." You know, like there's this sort of correspondent feeling that seems right, and there's no evidence for it. But when you start digging around that, you start to find these relationships to things make sense. Particularly when it comes to the human body, like a building, like architecture. Yes. Like it's, it, it's the it's a it's a clear measure. A building to a person because it's a person who's supposed to dwell that's in right it, you know. now there's another thing that happens here with 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 arch- difference between architecture and and poetry is is uh is that poetry is is embodied in language and language you need to kind of get through a barrier of what c- conventional meanings have been attributed to the signs that are on the page before you get to the poetic image or the poetic structure if you like yeah yeah with And there's no analogy between what is being talked about and the actual means of representation. 
Yeah, they're arbitrary. Mm. All the signs are arbitrary. You, whereas in architecture, you look at a plan or a drawing, it's actually quite like the finished building. Some bits are exactly the same, like shape, for instance, and dimensions and things like that and proportion will be the same. In the, and there's, there's not this representation where it's arbitrary, totally arbitrary. You have to work your way through language to have to understand what it is that's being talked about. And then you can do the, the poetic thing with it. Yeah. But what about the poetic thing with buildings where um, how someone chooses to use it so an architect will have a certain plan for a building and then the people go in and just just use just it well, that's directly yeah but there's no representation there it's just it's just there it's presentation modern sculpture has this yeah. where, where as soon as there's no representation in the art which is say abstract art or concrete mm. art you've got you've got the actual stuff itself yeah and you react with that yeah instead of having to work out some kind of code or something mm. or other in it. Actually, they're even coded too. A minimalist work is still just as coded. <laughs> yeah. it's just, we can't get away from it. Yeah. yeah. But if, look, the idea of a... Uh, there are, Here's a good example. Here's, also, here's a good example. Remember, yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that film, um, Dog... Um, 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 what were they called? The... It was Sean Penn that was the narrator, Dogtown and Z-Boys. No, no. It was a skateboarding, I think it was called Dogtown and Z-Boys, yeah. it was a skateboarding documentary. It was brilliant. And it was about these guys, these kids, you know, young teenagers. Oh, that. going to abandoned buildings and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, what they were going yeah. into was there was a big drought in California yeah. and all these people in this wealthy area had those big concrete pools. Oh, which yes. Had smooth okay, edges. all right. And no, what they did, they had else, a little, yeah. yeah, it's probably similar, but they had a truck. And they went round, and these skateboarders, I don't know where they got this pump from, but they'd pump, there'd be little bits of water because of the drought, yeah. and they'd pump the water out, and they'd jump in and skateboard, and the owners yeah. would come home, and they'd run off. Yeah. But for whatever reason, there was a photographer there who was just into yes. skateboarding, and no one yes. cared about this stuff, and they were taking yeah. photos and doing yeah. this. And eventually, there was this, in the document, there's a wealthy family, and there's a kid there who loved skateboarding, and knew all these guys, and he was sick in bed, and maybe mm. dying or ill anyway, and said, look, all I want to do is bring these guys over and empty the pool while it's in it so they can skateboard in it. Now, the skate Pools were never designed to be emptied out and skateboarded on. No. So there is some poetic... You know, well, the poetry I'm talking about, this sort of reinvention of a reading of an object. So, yes, so yes. it must happen in buildings too, where you get a re-reading yes, of it. Yes, you do. You and do. it turns it around. Buildings are constantly reused for different kinds of things. Mm. There's no doubt mm. about that. And it, and it adds to their meaning, if you like, or mm. to their social position. Mm. Um, by the way, with a, with a skateboarding pools, for instance, now a skateboarding uh, installation anywhere done d definitely for skateboarders has these pool-like objects yeah, in it. Yeah, That's stuff. right. Yeah, yeah. Sort of so that's where that comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it came, yeah. So, well, well, you can't have any sharp edges. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, obviously, yes. Yeah, yeah. But the, um, the, the business of the reuse, there are some architectural theorists who say that one of the things that defines architecture is use. Mm. That That's actually integral to it, yeah? Yeah. Which is tantamount to saying that um, that, that one of the integral uh, uh, things that's important for for painting might be the business of looking, yeah. Which sounds bizarre, but yeah. certainly with with architecture it makes sense. And there's a classic example, of, a classical example for us in European culture, and that's the Pantheon, oh, which yeah. is a Roman building. Yeah, it's a big sort of sphere. A spherical uh, uh, volume inside with a half dome with a hole in the roof. And there's a temple front on the front. Okay. 
Well, that was built as a, as a Roman uh, temple of the gods. So all of the niches around the walls of it, around the circular base of it, were positions where the gods of all the different parts of the Roman Empire would live. So it's like a compendium, compendium of gods, yeah? yeah. Okay, it becomes a Christian church. So all of those gods turn into saints. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah? Right. Okay. Uh, then, the, uh, then people decide to use it for a marketplace. Mm. Same building type, yeah? And you think, yes, that's right, because what a market is, is all the produce that we eat being brought and distributed into the one place. So it's another example of the kind of unity and diversity thing, the collection, central collection of the entire empire, if you like, mm. of food. Of course, our state library here in Victoria is modelled on it. Mm. In fact, the University of Virginia has a library designed by Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Latrobe, which is a half full-size model of the Pantheon. Yeah, yeah. And it has... That's yeah. where the library is, which is all knowledge, yeah? yeah? They even had a roof which was going to be a planetarium roof, you know, right. with, with, yeah. with a sort of a mobile sort of thing in it. But there we are. So you... Do you we get everywhere. Like, look at the MC. Like, the MC, it was a cricket ground, but it must have helped usher in AFL because they play on these grounds. Do you know what I mean? So come summer, it's winter. Sorry, come, summer's gone, yes. winter's here. What do we do with these overs? We'll kick a ball around, you know? Yes. So it helped define the game. Yes. If, we, oh, if again, they were all playing rugby. Again, a Roman, a Roman, <laughs> um, a, a Roman um, origin like this, uh, Christians decide they're not going to go into a temple. Early Christians in, in the Roman times. Think, not going to go into a temple. That's, that's already, prof- that's, that's not us, yeah? yeah. So, but what we'll do is we will go to the legal courtroom <laughs> and it turns out the early christian churches are basically uh jurisprudence halls they're, they're courtrooms oh, yeah i can see it yeah. and the bishop's chair is the yeah, uh, like judicator's you the, you chair you've got the yeah. seats facing each yeah, other all that sort of stuff so <laughs> yeah. so so they've appropriated another kind of building type if you like yeah. into this new new use so well this happens constantly it's, it, it, and it's part of the um I think it's part of the uh, ritual and the, well, it's part of the socialisation of something. Yeah. It's very, very nice. Well, on that, like, because yeah. you've been rewriting Purgatorio for how long? Yeah. Oh, about, well, I've been thinking about it for about 30 years and then it took me about nine, no, six or seven months to do, actually do 30 years later. Oh, I might well, so you want to read a bit? Oh, you know, uh, well, uh, this is... Probably canto- don't want to, but I'll get so, you no, to No, okay, <laughs> yes, that's right. This is Canto 25. Um, and the poets are flying to Hobart from Victoria. Every yeah. reading of yeah, this type. Right. They're, they're okay, because <laughs> they're floating. Okay. A blur surrounds us as we rise and fly south. The sun glows on our right. We are determined. We're fast, and despite our pace and my special escorts in single file, like a migration among the purring wings, I feel a bit heavy. Oh, they're being escorted by the orange-bellied parrot, which does a sh- uh, flight across oh, okay. Bass Strait. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Among the purring wings, I feel a bit heavy, hesitant like a baby bird leaving its nest. As we glide and fly across Bass Strait, there is more travel talk. Curious as ever, I want to ask about my strange levitation. Virgil encourages me. So, are body and soul linked or separate? Both, says Virgil. Remember the folk tales in which mute objects steal a person's soul, the person then forced to live a double life. Statius, he's a, there's three of them together here. Statius will have a more modern version of this. It's better he explains. To caution me, Statius says, I can't refuse, but this is a vast topic 
and the centuries between Virgil and me and you flow into the future, which has different ways of explaining the same things. I can sense the sceptic poet rewriting this epic and who winces at soul, but has no alternative. So from this distance, I can answer your question by examining his project. This begins with a pure idea of a story to tell, but without tangible images and language. Another purity appears, the divine comedy, and it's the middle book, but it's too is just an idea. Put together, the two abstractions become tangible and concrete through particular images, successive white boats going north to south, shaping the new poem. Geography and history quicken its body, separate cantos emerge with different themes intact and also interwoven, and the continent, which is the plot, suggests a narrative from place to place. No single canto, no single line or image defines the poetry, but the whole vibrates in the silence of reading. The poem has a life. Some of its bits show evidence of Dante. Some of its bits show the rewriter writing. The abstract purity of each sometimes glows and glints. And as it's read, the poem lives in the reader, their imagination guiding their mess of experience to reform the poem again and again. Your colleagues, Virgil and mine as well, look for a parallel between the way a poem is made and the way a human is made, then easily slip to thinking that all of nature is created this way. This is just our inborn skill at imagining things, at finding forms and patterns which deliberately, for gain and for pleasure, mix the possible and impossible. Hence, Virgil and I are able to walk, talk and feel, glide and fly, and you, poet, as well, your body is only as solid as the ink on this page. We have gone over the island, are at its south, we hover, then drop into a city's oval space, a green arena with a road around it and a smell of burning, it being afternoon and time for barbecues. Watch where you go, says Virgil, there is heat and purpose to these fires, and wandering ideas are disciplined here so the commitment is true. There are lots of shades wandering around, to and fro, like my glances, to and fro, music repeating, cycle after cycle. I overhear the shades talking to each other, not of themselves, but of the other, to them, so that each individual's observations spread like fire, like fission, and all are particular, but not more important than each other, fused in a ritual, flickering unity. There you have it. Well, quite accidentally, that covers some of the things we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah.